what she's struggling with is not actually criticism, but praise. The man who kills a man kills a man. We've all thought what Job thought. You know, curse of the day I was born. If you're suicidal, you're dying because you hate things. But if you're a martyr, then you're dying because you love things. And sometimes salvation comes in the form of a toothache. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Dokapel. And I'm Sophie Glomperens. Today we have a special guest, Sophie. Who is it, Raymond? Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish is here with us today. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. <laughs> this is Unreliable Narrators. <laughs> A podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ himself in the world. That was amazing. Yeah, great. Thanks, Billy, for doing that. You're so welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, uh, no, unfortunately, we were only in jest. She did not answer any of our emails. Um, She doesn't write to us either. Yeah, so, but we are going to be talking about the one and only Billie Eilish and her song, Everything I Wanted. Which is not, I have to tell a story about this song, which is that I recently was at a STOA tournament. And I know that some of our listeners aren't STOA speech and debaters or don't know about STOA. And that's totally fine. Um, But I was at a tournament and they were doing, I went and I judged uh, finals of the Mars Mars Hill speech event, which is why we started this podcast at all. And I listened to a competitor who shall remain unnamed, actually, because I don't remember who it was. Um, And this competitor gave a speech on this song, and I had never heard this whole song. I had heard, like, the first two lines, but I hadn't heard the whole thing. Um, So I listened to this speech, and this competitor told me that this song was about getting everything you wanted, which is, like, fame and success and glory and how that doesn't satisfy you, and the only thing that can satisfy you is Jesus. And I was like, okay, fair point. Thanks for telling me that. And then I listened to the song, and this competitor lied to me, because that's not what this song is about at all. It's not even close. So I guess we're here a little bit to set the record straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think of Billie Eilish? Do you like her? Uh, I like Billie Eilish as a person, um, and I think she's really interesting, but I don't love her music. I, I, I agree. I actually, yeah, I, she fascinated me. Yeah. She fascinated me way more than Ariana Grande fascinates me. I think she fascinates a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, she's a very interesting person. And she definitely, um, I think what makes her famous is that she's supposedly supposed to, like, quote-unquote, represent Gen Z. Yeah. Sort of. And um, I don't know how accurate that is. Well, I mean, it's accurate because people say it's accurate. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but also there's, like... Here's the first artist to be like, this is what it means to be Gen Z. Yeah. And I guess there is some truth in it because, I mean, Gen Z is the most, like, technologically saturated generation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the first people to grow up with, like, smartphones. Yeah. Um, 
Billie Eilish was homeschooled, by the way, which is what makes me like her, yeah. you know, naturally, because uh, representation. Although yep. we're not entirely sure if we want her to represent us. Yeah. But, but she was homeschooled. And I think what that can say is that homeschoolers produce very unique people. Yes. So, <laughs> very special people. Yes. Um, so, I think that, that that also... And you can kind of see why... Or how that the, the, there is some sort of truth in her kind of like representing Gen Z. Yeah. But Gen Z almost is willing to adopt that identity of being a sort of person who's sort of emo and mumbles and doesn't really care and loves The Office. These are all very yeah. Gen Z things. Billie Eilish loves The Office, by the way. She's watched it 12 times, mm-hmm. I believe. And Rain Wilson, the actor in The Office, once visited her house. Um, and surprise, it was one of those celebrity things. And quizzed her wow. on The Office. And she couldn't answer a single question. <laughs> <laughs> so it was... Someone's angry about this. It was pathetic, I don't think. Wow. <laughs> oh, Billy. Oh, Billy. But anyway. Um, I also wanted to say, I think another way that she is sort of a representation of Gen Z is in the fact that she's not just willing to accept that certain cultural things are just the way that things are. There's a little bit of a rebellion against the establishment. Um, Like, for example, I think the fact that she, for a long time, would wear really weird, like, baggy clothing because she didn't want anyone to talk about or look at what she was wearing or her body and objectify her. She didn't want to be like, even a little bit a sexual object. And so she did all that, and then eventually she stopped because she was like, it didn't stop people (laughs) from talking about my body, so I guess it just didn't work. But the fact that she knows that that's the way that magazines and the media and everything, that that's just the way that that works, and she doesn't like that, and she wants to push back against that, um, I think is a really younger generation sort of thing to be doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what is this song really about? Uh, suicide. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's pretty much pretty much what it's about. And how how do you come to that uh, interpretation? Because we watched the music video together, and yes. <laughs> when I watched it, I was like, "Well, this seems very dark and depressing, and a definitely like suicidal mindset." Um, this is what I thought, and you're like, "Oh, it's just about suicide," and I was like, "Wait." It's about suicide? Really? Like, how, how is it? And I didn't, I didn't see it immediately. So the lyrics at the beginning, the first half of the first verse, she says, I had a dream. I got everything I wanted. Not what you'd think. And if I'm being honest, it might have been a nightmare. So she starts out by talking about how she had this dream. And in this dream, she got everything that she wanted. And that everything that she wanted is not what you'd think. So immediately we know that it can't be fame and success and all that because... That's what you would think, right? You would think that she got everything she wanted and that what she wanted was success, but it's not what you'd think. It's contrary to expectations. And then actually it might have been a nightmare. And then she describes the dream in the second half of the first verse. She says, thought I could fly, so I stepped off the golden. Uh, The golden is short, presumably for the Golden Gate Bridge, So, which is a very common popular place to commit suicide there's actually a documentary about called the bridge i think about uh everyone who's committed suicide by jumping off the golden gate bridge she says nobody cried nobody even noticed i saw them standing right there kind of thought they might care so she says 
uh, she had a dream that she committed suicide by stepping off the Golden Gate Bridge and that nobody actually cared. And that that was a nightmare, is what she says in the first part. Um, and then she ends that first verse by saying, I had a dream, I got everything I wanted, but when I wake up, I see you with me. And the music video makes it really clear that she's talking about her brother Phineas, who is her best friend. Um, and then the chorus that comes through the song several times is her brother saying, as long as I'm here, no one can hurt you. Um, if I could change the way that you see yourself, you wouldn't wonder why you hear they don't deserve you. So her brother, Phineas, makes her want to live. He keeps her from that dream of suicide. So, uh, and I mean, there, there's more throughout the song, but that very beginning is what contextualizes the fact that she's talking about being suicidal, wanting to commit suicide, um, and then her brother, her brother's loves keeping her from that, keeping her from committing suicide. And she distances herself from it a little bit by describing it as a dream, but she does say that the dream is everything that she wants. And then she goes, uh, throughout the rest of the song to give a little bit of insight into why she might be suicidal, but she's not super clear about that. The thing she's super clear about is the fact that the dream is, is suicide. Right. And so this is where it gets like very vague near the end. Like it's very difficult to say what kind of space that she, mindset or where she is. Mm -hmm. Like, is she talking about herself in the dream or herself in reality? Yeah. Um, but the, the ending, the outro, she says, if I knew it all, then would I do it again? Would I do it again? If, if they knew what they said would go straight to my head, what would they say instead? Um, so, again, very difficult to, I mean, it's actually very common of most pop songs. That they're very intentional about being vague. A little bit abstract. A little bit abstract. But she did actually explain it a little bit, mm -hmm. I think, in an interview where she says um, it, that's that's the epitome of what that dream was, talking about fame. And if you were to commit suicide and you could see how life went after that, would you do it again? So she's talking about hypotheticals here, which is actually... Pretty common for anyone who's thinking about suicide is like, yeah. you know, is the hypothetical. And which I think is, here's the interesting thing about this discussion on suicide is that I think that today in our culture, we talk about someone who is suicidal, mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of otherizes them. Like they're, they're a category by themselves. Yeah. I'm, I'm suicidal. I struggle with suicide. And that makes you different from other people. But I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a literature major. I've read like... Lots of books from the, you know, all the way from Ecclesiastes to modern day. And um, suicide is talked about, like, all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like, to me, not wanting to kill yourself is like the abnormality. Uh, when you look at the vast majority of people uh, who, who, who take the pin up and, and um, um, just, just general, when you look beneath the surface. And so I think part of the reason why people commit suicide is really because they've convinced themselves that they are alone in their feeling, mm -hmm. that that is a special category that they have. And like the most, uh, one of the most famous speeches in all of English literature is Hamlet, which we know to be or not to be, is about suicide. And he speaks of this exact hypothetical that Billie Eilish is. It's like, this is Billie Eilish's mm -hmm. to be or not to be speech. Hamlet says, 
well, you know, what about that? I can't remember the exact text. You know, what about that dream Some of something beyond death? Wouldn't that would that not make us rather bear the ills we have than to fly to others we know not of? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like that's the thing that is so thus conscience makes cowards of us all. So it's like, well, the reason why a lot of us we've all thought that point at that point. We've all thought what Job thought, you know, curse of the day I was born. We all think what sometimes over Solomon something thought. so dumb. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We despair over tiny things. Right. We th- we think what Solomon thought it would be better to have never been born, and then then we don't do it. Most of us don't do it, right? Mm-hmm. The majority of people don't do it, and a lot of it is because we don't know what's beyond death, and we think about the hypothetical, as Billy Eilish was thinking about the hi- hypothetical. Yeah. You know, if if I went back, and this, she was actually talking about people who have attempted suicide, mm-hmm. who've reported to have regretted it. Which is, you know, a weird thing that you regret, even though you failed to do it, you regret that the very action that you did it at all. Yeah. Um, and so if I could go back, would I do it again? And that's not something you can think about if you succeed. Right. right. Which is why you're so, um, which is why most people decide, as Hamlet did, decided not to do it because mm-hmm. I'm too afraid of that undiscovered country. What is going to happen after death? And, you know, maybe I do have a soul and maybe it really is immortal. And so maybe it does matter, um, which is why most people do it. But, you know, yeah. but I mean, suicide, the, the desire to just give it up, not want to live. I mean, it's I think it's a pretty common feeling for a lot of people. Yeah. So I, I think I think people need to hear that. You know, I think people who are struggling with it need to realize that, like, yeah, what you're feeling is not like doesn't make you a basket case. It doesn't make you special. Yeah. I think another important thing to clarify about that, too is that I don't think everyone has conscious thoughts about killing themselves. Um, I, I like I don't think that's an experience that everyone has. But I think maybe the way that Jordan Peterson would put this in 12 Rules for Life, he has a chapter about um, the rule is treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. And he talks about this crazy phenomenon, which is that people uh, will never miss a dose of medication if they're giving medication to someone else, even like their pets. If your pet is prescribed medicine, you will always, always, always give them their medication. But that people all the time will neglect to take their own medicine um, in the correct doses and at the correct times. He says, okay, well, then why does that happen? Why do people not give themselves medication, but they'll give like their pets medication or things like that? And he says that it's because there's some kind of inherent self-loathing there's an inherent feeling of being unworthy of being taken care of even in with medicine that is life-saving um that people have and that thought may not be conscious or uh, conscious you may not consciously think i feel this way about myself but that everyone has that in them everyone has that sense of maybe not being 100 percent worthy of being cared for um, and then that's part of what we're talking about here, too. Yeah. And actually, I think that that really sheds light on these last two verses, which seem really vague. But actually, if you think about it that way, it seems very clear because she says, and you say, so she's talking to her brother and her brother says, if I could change the way that you see your see yourself, you wouldn't wonder why you hear they don't deserve you. If I could change the way that you see yourself. So um, obviously... Her brother is trying to, well, you know, boost her up a little bit, cheer Mm -hmm. her up. Um, And 
she's he's trying to, you know, give her a bit of self-esteem so that she can have her little raison d'etre, her reason to live, to go on. Mm-hmm. But it's a hypothetical. If I, I can't, I, I'm trying to figure out how you, I can change the way you can see yourself, but I, I'm not going to succeed in doing that by just telling you, you're a great person. You're a beautiful person. You're, you know, you're a wonderful person. You know, people love you. Like, yeah. And that's what, you know, people who are having this problem, that's what they, they don't want to accept that people, no matter how much people say that about yeah. them, because they've got this self-loathing problem. And then we have this line. Where it says, if they knew, we don't know who they is, but if they knew what they said would go straight to my head, what would they say instead? So what I interpret that is basically all of her fans. She's talking about being famous. She's talking about all how everyone is praising her. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's saying go straight to my head that the kind of context of that phrase is sort of meaning to sit, talk about like compliments that would make you arrogant. That's what getting to your head means. Yeah. Right. So it seems that what she's struggling with is not actually criticism, but praise. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and so, like, her Which brother... Would, would explain why Phineas says, you wouldn't wonder why you hear they don't deserve you. That what she's hearing is fans or the audience saying, they don't deserve you. You're so good that the world doesn't deserve you. And that that's what she's struggling with. And that's supposed to make her feel better, but it's not. Yeah. And then she's asking, well, you know, if... If praise isn't going to actually um, boost my self-esteem and make me feel better and make me want to live, what would they say instead? Right. Like, would they insult me? Would that make me feel better? And, like, that's that's the big question, right? Mm -hmm. You want people, everyone wants to be affirmed. But I think that the difficulty with the way we talk about affirmation is that it's not just so easy to just be told you're a good person. Yeah. I think the reason why people have a difficult time accepting this is partly is because we're prideful. Yeah. Right? But also because we know that everyone else is also just as flawed as we are. Yeah. So, like, and by what sort of authority do they have to say that I'm a good person? It's like, you're messed up, too. So, it's like, what you want is, like, the perfect person to tell you that. Yeah. To someone you know that is perfect. Because, so what would they say instead? You know, what could they say that would be better? There has to be some kind of word of authority. Yeah. Which I do, I think that one of the ways in which, obviously, artists all the time, people who get famous, kill themselves. That's not unfamiliar. That happens all the time. Um, It's really common. You could say that maybe the greatest suicide risk is just to be rich and famous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's an interesting question is why that happens. And I think part of it is that when you're really famous, uh, you let's say you go to a concert, you perform a concert and you are performing in front of this huge audience and they're all screaming about how much they love you. And it's all these fans. And then you feel good in the moment. And there's this really adrenaline rush. There's this high. And then you're done and you go back and you're in this empty hotel room. Right. You're done with your concert. And it's like, okay, well, all these people say they love me, but they don't because they're not here. Right. They don't actually know who you are. Um, And that's a really difficult thing to struggle with. I imagine. Obviously, we're not famous. Maybe this podcast will take (laughs) off and then we'll struggle with this, too. Yeah. What if it gets to our head? But what what will we say then? What will we do? (laughs) But um, if I can imagine that it would be really difficult to live life like that, to be really famous and think that people... People say that they love you, but they actually don't really love you. Well, I've heard somewhere 
um, I remember hearing somewhere that the original word for genius, the Latin genius, in the context in which it was used, um, genius. No one ever said, at least in Roman times, when the word was in common parlance, uh, no one said that a man or a woman is a genius. Mm-hmm. They said that you have genius because genius was like this sprite, this spirit that, mm-hmm. like a muse, that you would, that would visit you or not visit you, and so it was never attributed to you specifically. Mm-hmm. So what what changes in our mindset when we go from someone has genius to someone is a genius? Yeah, is that we put a sort of we deify this figure, which and in, in place a certain level of deity to that person that should never be given to a human being. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is funny because we started out this episode by talking about how the song isn't really about fame or success, and it isn't right. It's about suicide but the the suicidal tendencies are actually induced by being famous and successful and that's not the dream what she wants she says i had a dream that i got everything that i wanted and you might expect that to be fame and success but it's not it's all these problems that are induced by being famous and being what everyone would consider successful and it isn't like oh i got all this fame and success now there's, but it didn't fill the hole in my heart. <laughs> I need something else to fill in the hole, fill the hole in my heart. It's way more complicated than that. It's that she got famous and successful, whether or not she wanted that. And now has the, this difficulty struggling with suicide because of that fame and that success. Right. And so everything I wanted, I mean, and what, and what is this like? Okay. She wants suicide. Well, why does she want suicide? What, what comes with that is basically the feeling that, relief from waking up in the morning. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like consciousness. It's like, gosh, being awake is just such a pain. Like, Mm -hmm. living is such a pain. And you don't want to just go back to that time when you sort of had, you know, equilibrium and peace of mind. You weren't thinking about yourself. And looking at yourself in the mirror wasn't such a burden before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's being, it's it's opening your eyes and realizing that you're naked. So the the problem I think and this is this is the whole hypothetical speculation here is what I want oh I want to kill myself I say but what I want is really not to kill myself what I want is freedom from consciousness mm-hmm. from being awake and the reason why I'm afraid to actually do this is because I'm not entirely sure if killing yourself is going to work mm-hmm. you know which is what hamlet says is what is what hamlet says um and that's where we get to, I think, the issue of suicide that I think is really not um, addressed or spoken about when we talk about suicide in culture. And that's like mm-hmm. the moral dimension to it. Yeah. Like, no, I think people, this is why it doesn't work. You know, I mean, the suicide hotlines is like, like affirm you is like, you're good. You're great. You know, don't do it. Your life is worth living. But what if we said don't do it because it's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's wrong. That's why you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Like, that's a different argument. Yeah. Can I read the G.K. Chesterton quote? Yes. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> so G.K. Chesterton has a, uh, in his book, Orthodoxy, he talks about suicide. Because that was something that he struggled with. And he, his explanation of what was wrong with it was almost entirely a moral argument. Um so this is the quote about suicide from Orthodoxy. 
Mr. William Archer even suggested that in the Golden Age there would be penny in the slot machines by which a man could kill himself for a penny. In all this, I found myself utterly hostile to many who called themselves liberal and humane. Not only is suicide a sin, it is the sin. It is the ultimate and absolute evil. The refusal to take an interest in existence. The refusal to take the oath of loyalty to life. The man who kills a man kills a man. The man who kills himself kills all men. As far as he is concerned, he wipes out the world. His act is worse, symbolically considered, than any rape or dynamite outrage. For it destroys all buildings. It insults all women. The thief is satisfied with diamonds, but the suicide is not. That is his crime. He cannot be bribed, even by the blazing stones of the celestial city. The thief compliments the things he steals, if not the owner of them. But the suicide insults everything on earth by not stealing it. He defiles every flower by refusing to live for its sake. There is not a tiny creature in the cosmos at whom his death is not a sneer. When a man hangs himself on a tree, the leaves might fall off in anger and the birds fly away in fury, for each has received a personal affront. Of course, there may be pathetic emotional excuses for the act. There often are for rape, and there almost always are for dynamite. But if it comes to clear ideas and the intelligent meaning of things, then there is much more rational and philosophic truth in the burial at the crossroads and the stake driven through the body than Mr. Archer's suicidal automatic machines. There is a meaning in burying the suicide apart. The man's crime is different from other crimes, for it makes even crimes impossible. That's such a, such like a, a different perspective, I think. Yeah. On, on the way people uh, on talking about suicide that I think is just like um, so so missing from the conversation there. Mm-hmm. But that's and I think it's so interesting that G.K. Chesterton, who we all think is like you know, such a jovial person. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, I just learned this recently that he actually had struggles with suicidal thoughts. And, and so that's a totally different response to decide to keep on living, mm-hmm. you know? And you know, what's also really interesting about this, the thing about this is this, this idea of, okay, suicide is, is, is wrong. Okay. We'll establish that. But then we look at like the Christian narrative and Jesus what Jesus did on the cross. Um, it's often criticized. Christianity has been criticized for being a suicidal narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what Nietzsche called it. That's what he criticized it for. He said, it, you know, it was like masochistic because there's an idea that like actually the greatest act uh, for a Christian is a martyr, you know, mm-hmm. to to die as Jesus did. And it's like, isn't this just kind of like a, a self-destructive narrative to sacrifice yourself? So what is the sin of suicide? And why is it different from martyrdom? So it has to do ultimately with selflessness versus selfishness, whether your action is oriented toward others and the salvation of others or whether it is oriented toward yourself and not your salvation, but the blotting out of everything else. Um, A martyr dies to save others. And if you're suicidal, you, according to Chesterton, are actually dying to get rid of everything. Um, you're not dying to save, you're dying to destroy because you're dying because you hate things. But if you're a martyr, then you're dying because you love things. Um, And the narrative of Christ's death, his passion, is that he dies and ultimately is raised because he loves the world, for God so loved the world. Um, But if you're killing yourself, uh, if you decide that you want to take your own life, you're not dying because you love the world. You're dying because you hate the world. Um, 
And that seems like a pretty stark difference. Those don't seem like the same thing at all. Right, right. But also, you know, I mean, then we kind of talk, get into like theological territory of like, what what does it mean to actually die for the world? Because, you know, that's always a question of uh, happens in um, in movies when someone sacrifices themselves, um, which always is conveniently sidestepped is what if their sacrifice didn't actually work? Like what if actually killing yourself didn't end up achieving the aim that you wanted to and yeah. you died for nothing? I mean, I, I can't think of an actual movie example of where this happened, but I feel like it has. Um, it would be cool. We should write it if it didn't. Yeah. But anyway, so then you have the same, but you have the same issue of the hypothetical. Yeah. Right. So it's like, you know, dying for a good cause, dying for someone else. Yeah. Um, that's a good thing. Dying because you hate the world. That's a bad thing. How do we know we're dying for the right reason? And how do we know that it will will save the world? And I think one of the ways we can answer that question is to think about martyr in a slightly different way because martyr just means witness. It's what the Greek word means, be a witness. So it actually doesn't mean literally dying all the time, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that one of the ways that we misunderstand being a martyr is that you're, you know, actually dying for your faith. I mean, like, that's, I'm not saying that's not a real good thing that you shouldn't, that you should, that that's, that's commendable. Um, but actually you are not called to anything less terrifying um, every day when you are called to be a martyr, because you are called in some sense to die and to live to see the results of your dying for yeah. other people. Um, I think that that is, that's the difference, I guess, fundamentally of having a, a at least, let's say, a suicidal m- mindset versus a martyr mindset. Yeah. Right. Um, because the act of suicide and being suicidal are closely related things. Mm-hmm. Having a, a mindset of despair like I think you were saying earlier before we were recording, like not wearing your seatbelt. Yeah. Like if you just walk around and just not wearing your seatbelt, it's like maybe it's because you have a suicidal mindset because you're just hoping that you might die. Yeah. Right. Um, or you know, you know, we had a we have a friend a neighbor who recently passed away. He was a chain smoker, and you know, my dad would always talk to him like, you know, you got to stop smoking. Uh, you know, it's going to kill you one day. And he's like, I know, I'm gonna, it's going to kill me. But you know, everyone dies, right? And so it's like that's kind of like a suicidal mindset. Yeah. And he did, and he died of like lung problems so i mean that kind of happened so that's like so it's like it's it's not always an act right Mm -hmm. it it can also be a lifestyle an attitude an attitude and i think that there's a quite a lot of people who who fall into that category definitely i would say not a minority doesn't make you uh, that special but there's there's two different ways to die i guess yeah um i think a story that maybe kind of ties all that together is um Andrew Clavin, who is a really good uh, podcaster, and I guess it's really just the modern form of having a radio show, Um, but he used to be a screenwriter uh, for Hollywood, and then he was too conservative for that, and so he ended up having a show, like a radio show, and then also writing novels and things like that. But he grew up a secular Jew, and then eventually he... um, became a Christian. But before he became a Christian, he struggled with uh, suicide. He was suicidal. And he actually overcame that before he became a Christian. And that's this whole story that I don't need to get into. But he, his story about the last time that he actively considered 
killing himself that he talks about in his uh, autobiography, The Great Good Thing, which is very good. I highly recommend it. Um, he says that before he, or when he was thinking about killing himself the last time, he was thinking about going up on his roof and jumping off of it, but he was watching or listening to a baseball game and there was this player he really liked who was playing injured and that they asked him, they interviewed him after the game and said, hey, you were playing and you were injured. Like, why'd you do that? And then the player says, well, sometimes you just have to play in pain. And Andrew Clavin heard that and thought, okay, that's a thing I can do. And that actually got through to him. And that was the last time that he thought, because after that he would think, okay, well, I'm just playing in pain. Um, and I think that's really helpful for everybody um, that sometimes you do just have to play in pain, <laughs> whatever you're, whatever's going on. Um, and that that is part of being a martyr is playing in pain. Um, and that sometimes that is what is being asked of you, but that's suffering and that suffering is good. Suffering is good for you. It's purgative. Um, and that's just a very different way of thinking about suffering and of, about living than most people think about it. You know, while you were telling this story, it made me think of another story uh, by the Southern author uh, Walker Percy. I, I don't know if it was the end of Lost in the Cosmos or The Last Gentleman, but the protagonist at the end of the story is about to commit suicide and then he gets a splitting toothache and then he it's so bad that he doesn't do it and that's how it ends that's how the novel ends it's like hilariously absurd um and then i was like yeah you know what is it what's actually the point of ending it it seems like a pretty weird way to end a story but i think that also the kind of like comic element is part of what uh turns turns the tide around um, the comic element, but also, um, like you said, playing in pain. It was pain. It was actual, real pain that made the protagonist of the story decide, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And sometimes salvation comes in the form of a toothache, I guess. That's the moral of the story. So, Billie Eilish, we hope that you get a toothache someday. <laughs> or that you listen to a baseball game. Yeah. Um, either one of those work, we recommend. Uh, and, and, and if you really want to come into the podcast, we're sorry for making fun of your voice. Uh, we, we, we do love you, and we, we, we think you should be on sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you can come. We, <laughs> if listening to this episode hasn't made you not want to come on the podcast, we'd love to have you. Yep, yep. All right. Cool. Well, uh, thank you for listening, everyone else. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or write to us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by Raymond Okapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be talking about a different Billy by the name of Bond, who created the art piece Perfect Imperfection, The Art of Healing. Until then, friends, you know who doesn't compliment flowers by choosing to live for their sake? The bad guy. Duh. I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide. And maybe it's true that nothing is new, but I can see